This is a Federal News Network podcast. A gambit by the Biden administration to mail COVID test kits to every household. It's highlighted a part of the Postal Service most people don't see. The mail and packaging sorting and logistics that take place before items get into those little white trucks. Here with an update, the president of the American Postal Workers Union, Mark Diamondstein. Mr. Diamondstein, good to have you on. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Picture for us what is going on here, because your folks sort and otherwise direct packages all the time to the trucks. What's new about this? In the broad stroke, what's going on is the Postal Service is, again, is a public agency and uh, universal service to everybody's address no matter who we are and where we live, we're taking on a new project for the American people. And we're very proud of that. And we're enthusiastic about it. Now, very specifically, the Biden administration is planning to send uh, free test kits, COVID test kits, which we certainly support. It's an ongoing public health crisis, but free uh, uh, test kits into everybody's home who asks. So that could be potentially 120, 130 million orders. So then there's the challenge of how to get those orders to the people. Uh, And the Postal Service plays the role. Once the product gets to the Postal Service, postal workers can only do our part when the test kits get to the post office. We're not responsible for that. But once the test kits get there, we've set up a whole program where there's going to be packaging, uh, labeling, and, 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 of course, the postage, and then going into the mail stream. So we've agreed with the the Postal Service to allow them to keep a a lot of temporary holiday help to be focused on this project. We don't want the project to take away from your regular mail and that processing and what should be timely delivery there. So there are going to be thousands of people just working on this project. The test kits come in, they're going to get bubble wrap, they're going to be put in envelopes, and they're going to go right into the mail stream. All in one place, like Oklahoma or something? The, the other thing the Postal Service did that I think is good for this project is they've, they're doing it at 43 sites around the country. So it's not like if you order a test kit in Los Angeles, it's going to be packaged in in Washington, D.C., and then have to go across the country. It's going to be directed to those specific areas that will be a closer radius to where they are going. Now, people that ordered with the website, as I did, and it took two seconds, and I had a affirmation, and I got an email affirmation from the Postal Service. What is the linkage between, say, a given address and a given order of four boxes of four test kits How does that get into those 43 centers so that that can be coordinated with the labeling and and packaging? Well, that's the world of information technology. They have it set up where if you order from a particular zip code, they know what um, processing area to send it to that's closer uh, in that uh, radius. And once the post office is getting the product, so far it's going uh, pretty smoothly. Very interesting, Tom, in the first six hours, just to show you the demand and the need of the people of the country. In the first six hours that the website went up, approximately 45 million orders were placed. Uh, so obviously that's not going to be processed overnight, but also the test kits aren't necessarily there yet. They're coming in hourly and daily, but they're not necessarily all there yet. And is there some communication to the people making the test kits, the companies, as to what quantities roughly, they need to deliver to which of the 43 centers? Uh, I'm sure that's going on behind the scenes because it would not work without us. I think there is communication between the administration, postal management, 
the information technology and the platforms that are uh, used. So yes, they have to be able to know where to deliver those sites based on how many orders. And they already have a pretty good feel for where the orders are coming in in greater quantity due to the population of those areas. And I understand this work, and you indicated, it can't be done simply with the standard permanent workforce of the APWU, and there are temps coming in. What is their status with respect to the union and, and to the Postal Service? Well, so, look, it, it, it definitely is a temporary project, much like the peak holiday season is. But in every peak holiday season, a certain percentage of the temporary workers do end up getting hired as the post office has turnover. So some of them will probably have new opportunities going forward, but certainly not the majority. of. And at this point in time, you know, say the first week in February, last days of January, has that activity actually ramped up? Or are you awaiting the kits themselves at this point? No, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it is, I think ramping up is a good word right now, Tom, because part of what's ramping up is getting the test kit supplies from the manufacturers to the post office that we are not responsible for. Uh, so there's a ramp up there. But my understanding is they, they their goal is to move a couple million, at least a couple million test kits a day. They're staffing for that. They have the setup for that. Uh, so it, it's, it's really a question of getting the product into the system so the post office and postal workers can do our job. We're speaking with Mark Diamondstein. He's president of the American Postal Workers Union, and you have been meeting regularly with Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. How's that going? And uh, are you mostly seeing eye to eye on this whole project and things in general? Well, those are two <laughs> different questions. Tom. Things in general, yes and no. We have some serious disagreements. We did not agree with lengthening the time of mail based on longer distance. We think that the law says uh, that people uh, that apply postal services to the people of the country, it says prompt, efficient, and reliable services. So we completely disagreed with that. We made our voices heard. We organized with the public. And we'll try to continue to work in ways going forward to try to restore quicker and uh, better service. On the other hand, on a project like this, we're very much aligned. Uh, we think it's a great opportunity. Uh, there's a great need for the people of the country. And it's a great opportunity, once again, to uh, underscore just how important the mission of the Postal Service is to the people of the country. And we saw that uh, throughout the whole pandemic, uh, where even in these trying times, just like other essential workers, uh, stressful, trying and dangerous times, postal workers have remained uh, really dedicated to the mission. We, we say Without any disclaimers, we say that truly our folks and all the postal workers are postal heroes out here. So we, we, we are very much aligned on this. We're aligned on things like uh, maintaining six-day delivery, but we certainly don't want to see any reduction in service, and we don't want to see any reduction in hours of uh, postal operations on the retail side, where you would go get your stamps and rent your post office boxes and buy your money orders, et cetera. In general, it, what, what we do is we stick with the issue. Uh, and I call the postmaster generals and the board of governors. They have a 10-year plan. We call it the good, bad, and the ugly, which means it's got good. We're going to work with the good. And with the bad, we're going to work against it and try to make it better. Just to play devil's advocate, though, I think some of the measures that DeJoy has made have for the first time started to reverse the annual financial losses, the hollowing out of the Postal Service's balance sheet. 
And so if, say, it takes an, an extra day from Washington to California or from Seattle to Miami, and that would, on the other hand, make the whole system more financially sound, shouldn't that be a pretty good trade-off? Well, we, we don't see that. We, we certainly want to work to make the system financially sound. And, and another area where our union and postal management are aligned is in postal legislation to help write the finances, particularly the what we call the defunding of the public postal service from 2006, where law passed called the uh, Postal Accountability Enhancement Act. And that was the law that forced the post office to pre-fund retiree health benefits, not retirement benefits, retiree health benefits, 75 years into the future for workers that didn't even work at the post office yet, and in some cases weren't even born yet. This legislation that we're working on will undo that really draconian and erroneous unfair burden that no other agency or company has to do. But the slowing down of mail does not right the financial ship. In fact, we think that it drives away needed revenue because people can't get the service that they need from the Postal Service in a timely way, then they're going to go elsewhere. So we we certainly want to work together to right the ship, but we don't think slowing down the mail does it. We actually think it does the opposite. All right. Well, as someone who still writes letters by hand and puts stamps on them for first class, I can understand that point of view. And, of course, I can remember when daily delivery was twice a day, and that's 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 really going back some years. I think you and I are both showing our age. (laughs) I'm afraid so. And just a final question, how has the COVID and the infection rates and all the rest of that apparatus affected the APWU specifically because your employees, your folks are close together in a enclosed facility versus, say, the drivers and the carriers who are mostly out there alone interacting with biting dogs yeah. and recalcitrant mailboxes. Uh, look, it's it's been a it's been a huge challenge for us, just like all workers uh, and all, all, all people. We were able to put some things into place very early that made the workplace as safe as possible in terms of PPEs, masking, social distancing, cleaning chemicals, cleaning protocols, uh, but it's still been hard. We have, last, just the other day, we've had over 20,000 postal workers, not just the work, not just the people that we represent doing the sortation, but all postal workers as a whole. And that's just the official quarantine. Those are people who are sickened or been in direct line of somebody. It was. There are more people that can't come to work because they're not feeling well and they're going to get tested or they are not feeling that well and they want to protect the loved one or they don't want to come to work and possibly expose somebody. So it's had a huge impact on the workforce and it also has had a significant impact on service. And I think the people of the country understand that and appreciate that they want their postal services. They need it. They rely on us. They trust us. I mean, that 90% of the people of the country have a favorable view of the public postal service, higher than any other agency. And really, in many, in most cases, higher than any company, certainly a higher uh, rating than my grown children would rate their father and their mother, probably, right? 90%, unheard of. So, Look, it's it's taken a lot of patience and appreciation on the part of the public, but certainly the public doesn't want us to be sickened, but they also want their service. We also allowed the Postal Service time to hire some temporary people to make up for the impact of COVID on the staffing. So we, we, we've done everything we can to try to keep things moving for the people. We're not in complete control. Management's made some decisions that has 
undermine service. We oppose, but whatever we're facing, postal workers are still out there doing the best we can to serve. And the test kits are just to me. It's a wonderful example of just what it means to have a public institution because a private carrier on the package side, they're going to go where they can make money. They're not going to go to every address, no matter who we are and where we live. Mark Diamondstein is president of the American Postal Workers Union. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. I hope all the listeners uh, uh, are safe, be well, and a little belated Happy New Year to everybody. All right. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Have the Federal Drive delivered to you. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. 
How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.